it's been an eventful morning, and I know the question that all of you are asking, and I don't know the answer to it. I don't have any idea how to reprogram the clock on your VCR. I don't have any clue about how to do that. Years ago, I might have. You could probably ask a third grader. They could probably figure it out. But VCR. Yeah, you remember those days? Yeah. You remember those days? Those were good Barely. days. Well, good morning. It's good to see you on this beautiful Sunday morning. Hopefully, we're going to get a little rain today. Uh, it's good to have you. If you are visiting with us, we'd love, if you haven't already, uh, if you take out your phone, there's actually a QR code there, and if you take your camera app and you scan that, it should be able to take you to some place online where there's a, a visitor card online. There's a digital bulletin. There's all kinds of information you can find there, but we just love to have a record of your attendance. We're not going to bother you, harass you. We're just going to harass the people who walk in late. <clears throat> Especially, well, never mind. I don't want to, don't want to sleep on the couch tonight. Um, at any rate, um, I did want to give you an update from last week uh, that, uh, you know, we had a, a, a Gideon representative come and share with us about the ministry. And uh, I, I don't know that I've heard us give this much, but we gave $922 to the Gideons last week, so I was really excited about that, and so was Mickey, and he was happy to be here with us. Uh, a few other announcements. Uh, this Sunday and next are the last two for us to get together our Arctic Barnabas blessing boxes. As you can see back there, the box is full, but that doesn't need to stop you or deter you. If you would like to give some items for the Arctic Barnabas blessing boxes, there's a list of items that are needed on the box in the foyer. And uh, again, next week will be the last Sunday that we'll accept those. They'll ship the boxes um, pretty quick after that. There's an announcement in the bulletin also about CentraKid. It's June 20, 20th to 24th. And if you're interested in going, just make sure you contact Jerry, and there's going to be a fundraiser coming up pretty soon. Also, our March business meeting is next Sunday night at 6.30 p.m., and the meeting agenda is posted in the foyer. And if there's any kind of business that you need to get on uh, the, the agenda, and you just make sure and let me know by Wednesday, then we'll take care of that. Are there any other announcements that we need to share at this time? Can y'all count to 60? That, man, you got to use a lot of fingers and toes to count to 60. Avery and Maureen were married this week, their anniversary, 60 years. That is awesome. That's wonderful. I, I think it's easier to count, <coughs> excuse me, to 11. Can y'all count to 11? Today's Olivia's 11th birthday, so happy birthday to Olivia. Awesome. Any other announcements? Is there anyone else I can make feel awkward? Anyone else? <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop. Okay, um, for our call to worship, I'm going to do something just a little different. Um, if you, this has, has served me really, really well. This is a book called The Valley of Vision. And it is a collection of Puritan prayers. And uh, if reincarnation backwards was a possibility, I'd like to come back as a Puritan. Because those folks, they knew the Word. They knew the Lord. They prayed. I, I read some of the prayers that they wrote and prayed. And I am just almost embarrassed um, about my own prayer life. Uh, but it's always good to know that there are folks that have gone on before us that, that can be of great assistance to us in helping us learn to pray. So what I'd like for you to do, if you just bow your head and close your eyes, I want to lead us in a word of prayer. And this prayer is entitled Calvary's Anthem. <clears throat> Calvary's anthem. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have led us singing to the cross where we fling down all of our burdens and watch them vanish. Where all the mountains of our guilt are leveled into a plain. Where all our sins disappear, though they are the greatest that exist and are more in number than the grains of fine sand. For there is power in the blood of Calvary to destroy sins more than can be counted even by one from the choir of heaven. 
You have given us a hillside spring that washes clear and white. And we go as a sinner to its waters, bathing without hindrance in its crystal streams. At the cross, there is free forgiveness for the poor and meek ones, and ample blessings that last forever. The blood of the Lamb is like a great river of infinite grace, with never any diminishing of its fullness, as thirsty ones without number drink of it. O Lord, forever will your free forgiveness live that was gained on the Mount of Blood. In the midst of a world of pain, it is a subject for praise in every place. A song on earth, an anthem in heaven, its love and virtue knowing no end. We have a longing for the world above where multitudes sing the great song. For our souls were never created to love the dust of earth. Though here our spiritual state is frail and poor, we shall go on singing Calvary's anthem. May we always know that a clean heart full of goodness is more beautiful than the lily and that only a clean heart can sing by night and by day And such a heart is ours when we abide at Calvary. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and sing together.
have Denise and James back with us. I, th- I figured they'd get an amen because I led singing last Sunday. And <laughs> y'all were nice. I appreciate that. Most of you were nice. Anyway, so good to have y'all back. James, if you don't know, had an opportunity to preach at a church near Gatesville the past two Sundays. And so uh, grateful for him to have that opportunity. Uh, but we've certainly missed uh, he and the family. So glad they're back. Uh, this week begins, if you go to the next slide, uh, this week begins our, our week of prayer for North American missions. It's, and the offering associated with North American missions is the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And uh, you might or might not be able to see it on the slide, but uh, the goal, the national goal is $70 million. And I want to say, and I may be, I, I think I'm remembering this right, that last year, um, giving exceeded the national goal. And so that's a very good thing when God's people uh, recognize uh, how important it is to do this gospel work in North America. You can move to the next slide. Um, our goal for as a church is $6,000. Um, we had a really good um, offering given at Christmas time for, uh, for World Missions, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, and hope that we're able as a church to follow that and, uh, and beat this goal of $6,000. You can go to the next slide. Just remind us uh, why the need is so important. There's a mission field of 366 million people in North America speaking 350 languages, and 275 million of those are estimated to be lost. Um, and it takes the collaborative effort of God's people, either going or praying as we will this week and give as we will for the next two months uh, or going. And so um, just to be reminded once again of how crucial this work is and to see God's um, faithfulness to send and then to bless those who he sends, uh, we're going to watch a video and then as soon as that's done, I'll say a word of prayer to kick off our, our week of prayer. And then James will continue to lead us in worship. So if we can see that video. We live in a Christian nation. That's what some people say. Maybe that's why they often ask, why do we need missionaries here? There are places in North America where there are very few churches. People are very open to conversation, but... Nine times out of ten, they have not heard of Jesus. There is no pastors, there is no people can share the gospel with them. There's lives that can be made whole with the gospel. And we're watching God change people's hearts and change people's lives. But I wish people knew how many more laborers we need in the mission field because it's more than we can handle. Church planting is hard. We just got to work together. We can do more together than we can do apart. We need all the help that we can get, and that's what Annie does. It allows for more laborers to come here. The Annie Armstrong Easter offering unites us all, big and little, young and old, black and white. We all give because we know that when we do, our communities will look more like this. give because we know there's a name and a face on the other side of that gift. This offering, this gift that we're giving to and that everyone else is giving to, it does have a face. It's my face. This is the body. This is the body of Christ. That's what any Armstrong means to me. bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful uh, for those who have been called, who have been sent, who serve right now uh, in this great mission field known as North America. And we're grateful for the many ways in which the missionaries serve. They serve people in different locations, people of different nationalities, people of different languages. Uh, And we take great comfort in reminding ourselves of what the the end product is going to look like when we remember that people from every tribe and nation and people and tongue will be around the throne singing praises to the one who laid down his life for their salvation. We know that those won't be there apart from 
folks being sent to preach the gospel. And we know that, Father, apart from this gospel work, um, folks won't be saved. And so we know that you have people that are waiting to hear the gospel who don't know yet uh, that their lives are about to be changed when they come face to face uh, with their sin and the condemnation that it brings, then also the freedom and uh, the salvation that comes through a crucified and risen and ascended Lord. We pray, God, that this week, that we as a Southern Baptist Convention of Churches, that we would um, be diligent in our prayers for the people that uh, serve. We would be diligent to pray for the money that's given, and we pray, God, that you would take it and multiply it many times over, uh, that it would be used in accordance with your will for your glory. And above all, Father, we would like, um, we know that it's your will, your desire to see Christ exalted in North America. So, Father, lead us toward that. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, in whose right hands are evil are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord.
are saved is that third line. Oh, glory to God for such a redeemer is mine. God, you save us so that we may glorify your name. And we come to you, Father, confessing to you that though our lips sing and shout of the glory of God, we know that if it was left to us, we would be utterly hopeless. And so, God, as we sing this last song to you and to one another, let us be reminded that you are the rock that we hide in the shadow of. And that nothing in this life can take us down because you are God. Let's stand together and sing this song to him. If you would please take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Numbers. Book of Numbers. Be in chapter 21. If you did not bring your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you every week to walk through the door with your copy of God's Word. How precious. It is that we can have a copy of God's Word. So I want to challenge you, and I want you to take the challenge. Every week, bring your copy of God's Word. This morning again, we're in Numbers 21, being verses 4 through 9, familiar story. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, you should find a hardback black copy of God's Word in the pew somewhere around you. If you'll turn to the front of the Bible and find page 117, we will be at Numbers 21, 4 through 9. We're continuing a sermon series called My Jesus, I Love Thee. And again, we are taking New and Old Testament 
symbols, names, ways that Christ is revealed in the Scriptures. And we're using it. Well, I say we're using it. My prayer all along has been that as we progress through this sermon series, that we would love Jesus more. And so this morning as we look at Numbers 21, 4 through 9, I ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, and this is God's Word. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let's pray together. Lord God, uh, this story would be so easy for us, for me, to look down my nose at these seemingly just stumbling, bumbling people. Uh, they had watched you with a mighty hand and outstretched arm part the Red Sea. Uh, you had closed up the Red Sea. And killed all of the Egyptian army that pursued the people of God. You provided for them manna in the wilderness and quail and water. And yet still these these people get impatient with you. Lord, if truth be told, it's not that far of a step for us to move from the scripture to our own lives. Lord, we confess our impatience with you when you seemingly take the long way and don't do things the way that we would like. But as this text reminds us, we have one to whom we can look when we sin against you. Remind us of his glory and his finished work, that we might glory in him. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Many people at the beginning of the year make the decision, I'm going to read through the Bible. In a couple of places where normally people will get <coughs> excuse me, tripped up, one is Leviticus and the other is Numbers. Just to give you a quick background of the text and of the book of Numbers, the people of God, of course, they are out of Egypt. They were down in Egypt for a lengthy period of time, but God sent Moses to them, and Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let, God says, let my people go. And we have the plagues, and the parting of the Red Sea, and the destruction of the Egyptian army. And that's in the rearview mirror, as well as God making a covenant with his people at Sinai. Furthermore, God had spent the better part of a month uh, telling his people about the contents of the word uh, in Leviticus, uh, and they were on their way to the promised land. Now, there are some human characters, and I'm going to just... There's two main characters that I just want to point out to us. The, the first main character is the human characters. It's Israel. I'm not going to speak more in specifics. But Israel, in the first ten chapters of Numbers... They were fairly obedient. We could look at them and say that you know God was leading them and they were responding. But when you get to chapter 11, you see a different side of the people. They're obstinate. They're grumbling. They're faithless. They're ungrateful. They're sinful, weak, willful. 
fickle in their devotion to God, forgetful about what he's done, and just selfish. They were grumbling over food and water. They were grumbling about missing Egypt and the food that they had there. They grumbled about Moses. They grumbled about not possessing the promised land. They had the incident with the spies where Moses said, the Lord said to go and and, and to spy out the land. And they sent the 12 spies, one from each tribe. And they came back and 10 of the 12 said, no, we can't do this. Only Joshua and Caleb said, we can do this. God punished them for that. And then they came back and said, no, we sinned. We decided, well, let's go. And Moses said, no, if you go, it's only going to be failure. God will not go with you. And God did not go with them, neither did the ark go with them. Moses stayed home, and there was this failure in war. And because of all this, there's an 11-day journey that has suddenly become a 40-year journey. As God promised to the people of Israel, this generation who doubted me, they'll die off in the wilderness. And the ones that you said, our children, your children, that would be a prey in the wilderness... They're going to be the ones that go into the promised land. So there's Israel. but Then also the other main character is God. God is unfailing and unfading in numbers in His covenant faithfulness. He shows Himself to be sovereign over His people. He leads them. He's constantly working for His glory and for their good. He disciplines them. He chastens them. He never stops working. And in the midst of it all, he never stops, he never compromises his character. And he's always faithful to the covenants he made with his people. So, as we turn our attention to the text and consider it together this morning, we can summarize it with four words crisis, consequence, contrition, and confidence. Looking first at the first word, crisis. Again, in verses four and five, it says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. We see here that the people became impatient with God. Notice it says... Verse 4, it says the people, the end of it, the people became impatient on the way. That word for people, it's actually a few words in the Hebrew. It says the soul of the people. Not the souls of the people, but the soul of the people. It tells you how deep the impatience was for the people. They were so frustrated that the soul of the people as one became impatient. And that Hebrew word there literally means shortened. They were shortened. They were short on patience. And they became grieved and much discouraged, as some translations say. Why would this be the case? Well, if you look up on the screen, and hopefully you'll be able to see this, this is a map of the route that the people possibly took from Kadesh Barnea which is somewhere right around here. And then here's Mount Hor. And so they are leaving, and they're going to go this direction right here. But you notice that there is the region of Edom. Now, Edom, in chapter 20, the people went to Edom and said, Let us pass through your, through your land. We will not pass through. And this is chapter 20, verse 17. Let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, which is is right through here. So we will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, remember, this is Esau's descendants. Remember Jacob and Esau? This is Esau's descendants. Edom said to him, you shall not pass through lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass through. 
And Edom came out against him with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. So now look at the route they have to go. They have to go all the way down here and go around Edom. Now can you see why the people then would be impatient? They were terribly impatient. But one thing I want to mention here. When it says in verse 4 that they set out, it makes it sound as if they're the ones who are kind of setting the itinerary for the trip. But if you turn in the text, and I won't take time to do it now, if you turn back to Numbers 9, verses 15 to 23, it will explain to you the people did not set out on their own. See, the the cloud of the Lord's glory dwelled in the tabernacle which was in the midst of the people. And when the cloud of God's glory moved, then they packed up the tabernacle and the people side by side, tribe by tribe would move. And when the cloud moved, they moved. And when the cloud did not move, they did not move. And so when it says here, they set out, God was leading them. It also tells us in in Numbers 10, verses 33 to 36, that the Ark of the Covenant would actually be out in front of the people. And I want to take just a moment to read what it says here in, in Numbers 10, 33 to 35, specifically verse 35 and 36. It says, Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, and when the, when, the, when the ark stopped moving, because the glory of the Lord stopped moving in the cloud, and when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Okay, so God's leading them with the ark of the covenant and with the cloud. But Edom refuses passage. And this is probably what was so frustrating to the people because when the ark set out, remember Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. But the enemies aren't scattered. right? They went to Edom, who were their enemies, and the enemies aren't scattered. And so now they have to go the long way and they may be asking us, asking, Lord, why are you leading us this direction? In fact, in the text, they actually say, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Lord, you brought us out of Egypt to die. And as proof that we believe this, there's no food. Now, that's not true. God always provided manna to them, and He had been since Exodus 16. He provided quail for them in Numbers 11. They did have, <clears throat> have water. God always provided. In, in Exodus 17, Moses spoke to the rock. And in Numbers 20, <clears throat> instead of speaking to the rock, as God told him to do, he struck the rock. But God always provided. And they said, we loathe this worthless food. And here in the Hebrew it says, our souls loathe this worthless food. God, this stuff is awful. This stuff you provided for us, this manna is awful. So the people have become impatient. And it's real easy for us to look down our noses at these bumbling Israelites. It's like they're saying, Lord, we we have your promises and your presence, but if we disobey, your rod of discipline falls on us. And if we obey, Hardships and problems follow. I want to read from John Owen, The Glory of Christ, just a few paragraphs. He helps us to understand how this, these people, they're just like us. Our lusts and corruptions have the power to deflect us from Christ. And in addition, Satan is always ready to darken our minds and hinder our faith by his many temptations. His aim is to blind the eyes of men lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God should shine on them. However glorious is the light of the gospel by the, mean, by the preaching of the word, by various means and subtle tricks Satan blinds the minds of most who hear it so that they cannot behold the glory of Christ in it. 
In this way, he continues to rule the children of disobedience. But God overpowers Satan so that he cannot continue to blind his elect. He shines into their hearts to give them the knowledge of his, of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Yet, Satan will never give up. He will always try to darken the minds even of believers so they find it difficult to maintain their clear sight of the glory of Christ. And he does this in two ways. With some, Satan arouses fears, doubts, arguments, uncertainties, and various worries and troubles so that believers find it difficult to maintain comforting views of Christ or His glory. He tempts them to fear that they have been rejected and cast off by Christ. So their anxieties are increased and they are given to despair. These people, they're not far from... From us, or we should say, we're not far from them. That was fun. Are you awake now? And that's one way to. Owen helps us to see one side of it that Satan is tempting us. But Spurgeon helps us to see a different side of this. He says, Do not think it is a light thing to murmur against God or to complain of his providential dealings with us. No, it is really setting up our fallible judgment or our self will against the infinite wisdom of the Most High. It is high treason against the King of Kings. See, Satan was tempting the people to be impatient with God after he had, he had given them, God had given them so many things. And when they got impatient, they committed high treason against the King of Kings. Now we all know God can't suffer that to go on without some sort of consequence. You see, God must deal with the sin. You ever had a crisis of faith? These people are having a crisis of faith where their belief is being tested. Do I really believe that God is who He says He is and that He is doing what He says He is doing? And a crisis of faith can go one of two ways. You can sin against God by questioning Him and reprimanding Him. Or you can seek His face and ask for help. The Lord sent fiery serpents. I want you to notice in the text, verse 6, Then the Lord sent. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. The Lord sent these. And it shows us, that God's fatherly discipline here in the text now becomes punitive discipline. It's important for us to know the difference here between fatherly discipline and punitive discipline. You see, fatherly discipline, that, and, and you can think of this as parental discipline, but I say fatherly because God is our Father. Fatherly discipline is formative. It's designed to produce in us good habits and good behavior. Make your bed. Clean your room. Feed the dog. Now God was doing things similar to this as He led the people. He was teaching them that when I move, you move. And when I stop, you stop. And I'm going to be in the middle of you. And some of you are going to be on the north side. And some of you are going to be on the east. And others in the south. And others in the west. I apologize for that. Don't know what's causing it. But we're going to continue. But God's leading His people. Hey, Jared, why don't you just switch me over to the pulpit? I'll turn this off. See, this is what God was doing with His people. What He's doing is, they have left Egypt. And He's disciplining Egypt out of the people through this crisis of faith. Not only is He disciplining Egypt out of the people, but He's disciplining His character into them. Holiness, faith. He's teaching them obedience. But see, fatherly discipline won't work in this situation where they have sinned against God and against Moses. This calls for punitive discipline. Punitive discipline is corrective. And here God punishes the sin of speaking against Him and speaking against Moses. Now why does He do this? First of all, God loves His glory too much 
to allow his people to act like this. <clears throat> Furthermore, he, lo <clears throat> he loves, excuse me, <clears throat> he loves his own people too much to let them persist in sinful behavior. God doesn't want, when a crisis of faith comes, for his people to question him. Instead, he wants them to seek his face. I want to stop and talk about this discipline. And I want to pose a question to you. Do you have this type of discipline in your life? Do you have God's fatherly discipline in your life? Do you have, have you experienced his punitive discipline in your life? Because I want to tell you, friends, and I need to tell you plain. If there is an absence of fatherly and punitive discipline in your life, you may, may very well be absent of the Father and His love. Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. Listen to how it is described when God removes His fatherly discipline from people. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Do you hear that? God gave them up. Discipline no longer worked. He removed his hand from them. He gave them up. But God disciplines his people. Hebrews 12, 5 through 7. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And in this case, God is disciplining His people. And, and as a result of the, con, the consequence and the discipline that God brings on them, it produces contrition in the people. Verse 7 says, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. The consequence brought conviction of sin. Many people died. And sin's consequences in their life led to godly sorrow. Paul describes the kind of godly sorrow that really does produce repentance. He says, you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas a worldly grief produces death. They felt the conviction because of the consequence, because of God's fatherly and punitive discipline. And they took action. The people came to Moses and said, Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. And then they confessed. Verse 7, We have sinned. They don't just say that in a general way. So often when people pray, I hear this, Forgive us our sins or forgive us our shortcomings. And, and that's not a bad prayer to pray. But that would not have worked in this particular instance. Because there was a specific sin they were guilty of. And so they confessed that sin. We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. They confessed that they had spoken against the Lord and against Moses. And they say, in repentance... Of that sin, pray to the Lord that He take the serpents away from us. It says in the text, verse 7, So Moses prayed for the people. Now we don't know the contents of that prayer. Maybe Moses prayed exactly as the people requested. But as a result of the prayer, God told Moses to make a fiery serpent and to set it on a pole. Everyone who was bitten could look at it and live. Moses did exactly as God 
asked him to. And then he told the people the good news that if you were bitten by a serpent, you can look at the bronze serpent on the pole and live. You know, I didn't notice this until this week. God did not take away the serpents. God didn't take away the serpents. Why would God leave the serpents? I think Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 gives us some insight as to why God would leave something that just torments you in your life and doesn't take it away as you ask. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9 So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Why did God leave the serpents? So that his power might rest more fully on them. He left the serpents there to increase the people's confidence in him. Now if you look on the screen, you don't need to be able to read the words. They're they're small. But you get an idea as to what this bronze serpent looks like. Verse 8 The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What does that look like? Looks like a cross. See, this points ahead to Christ. Now, how did this boost the people's confidence in God? Because they were healed when they looked at the serpent. They could look and live. Not look at each other. Not look at Moses. Remember, Moses struck the rock. He's not going to get to go into the promised land. Their leader had failed. Not look at Aaron. Aaron had died back on Mount Hor. Not go and touch the bronze serpent. Not go and make an offering to it. Not be a part of some mysterious ceremony that someone else has got to lead on your behalf. Not make a pilgrimage somewhere. Look. Look at the serpent on the pole and live. God says, look at it. Believe my promise and receive my salvation full and free. I know what you're thinking. Probably what the people were thinking. Really, God? Really? Look at a snake. And that will take care of my snake bite. God, that doesn't make any sense at all. But notice what the text says in verse 9. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This bronze serpent points to Christ. You see, the people, they would die. But in Christ... There's eternal life. John chapter 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is having trouble understanding who Christ is and why he came. Jesus tells Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As the people might have asked the question, what in the world does a bronze serpent on a pole have to do with my snake bite? Many people today might even ask, what possible connection can there be between the mangled dead body of a Jewish prophet on a cross and say their foul temper, their lust problem, their blasphemy, or their broken relationships? This is the connection. You see, Christ is our fiery serpent. He came in the likeness of the cursed thing to bear the curse instead of us. Listen to Romans 8:3. For what God has done, what, what for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 
And Christ himself identified with us as cursed sinful men, even becoming our curse. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake... God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became our serpent in order to crush the head of the serpent. You ought to be thinking of Genesis 3 now. So that we know that there may be a first death in our life, but there will not be a second death. As we think about how to apply this text in our day-to-day life, you might think, what is bronze serpent and Christ being lifted up? What does that have to do with me and my everyday life? I'm going to leave you with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. After their confession and the prayer of their mediator, the Lord commanded Moses to make a bronze serpent that they might look on it and live. Now listen to this. This is Spurgeon talking. When I first came to Christ as a poor sinner, I thought him the most precious object my eyes had ever seen. But I look to him when I preach, remembering my own discouragements and complaining, and I find my Lord Jesus dearer than ever. I've been seriously ill and sadly depressed. I fear I have rebelled. Therefore, I look anew to him. It is a delightful thing that there should be a fountain open for sinners to wash in. That fountain is not for outcasts only, but for the saints, for the citizens of Jerusalem, for the house of David. Do we still sin? Yes, that we do. But the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's 1 John 1, 7. The bronze serpent healed me when I first saw the Lord. And the bronze serpent heals me today and will do so till I die. Jesus is lifted up that saints might not perish but might persevere in grace to everlasting life. How is our spiritual life rendered everlasting but by the continuance of that look? We are still to be looking to Jesus as long as we live. As Hebrews 12, 2 says, keeping our eyes on Jesus the source and perfecter of our faith. God, keep us looking if we have looked and bring us to look to Jesus if we have never looked. Have you ever looked at the Savior? The simple truth is that you are born into this world snake bit. The venom of sin courses through your veins. And apart from looking at the bronze serpent, you have no hope. After the first death comes a second death for you. A condemnation that nothing will be able to prevent after the first death. But I call on you today. If you know right now and the Spirit of God is speaking to you, then you know I am snake bit. The venom of sin courses through my veins. I see it and I know I'm condemned apart from Christ's work. I say to you, look to Him and live. But what I suspect for many of us is that we have taken that first look and perhaps forgot that we're to continue to look at the Savior. He's the source of our life. Remember, God didn't take the serpents away. We still live in a fallen world, and the serpent still bites us. Day after day after day, we have to go back to the source of our life. The source of our life is Christ Jesus. Let's look to Him. Father, we thank You for our Savior. We thank You for Him on the cross, lifted up for us crucified for our sin the debt of our sin paid in full we praise you God we ask God that cleanse us from all sin today and if anyone here needs to make the profession of faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord I pray that today they would look and live we pray this in Christ's name Amen
Let's stand and we'll sing together. real quick take a moment and uh, update you on a few folks on our prayer list Ben Campbell um, got a great report this week uh, made a, had a, a visit video visitation with a doctor who uh, told him uh, that one of the carotid arteries is not 75% blocked it's 50% blocked and they're going to put in some sort of uh, they're going to install something near his heart it's supposed to help with blood clots so praise God for that um, Nell um, I haven't heard anything about Nell this morning. Last thing we heard was that um, she stayed overnight in the hospital. Um, you know, she had surgery on Thursday. That surgery was not as extensive as they thought it was originally going to be. And so she was able to come home Thursday night, but then Friday uh, she had a problem. Was it Friday or yesterday? It's Friday. Um, at any rate, um, she had some, some bleeding, and they took her to the emergency room. She wound up going back to Temple and uh, thankfully, they got the bleeding stopped, and hopefully she'll be home soon. Um, others, deacons, help me remember anybody else we mentioned. Okay, just stand here and look at me. Okay. Any other updates or prayer requests? All right. Well, let's have a word of prayer together, and uh, then we will say the Great Commission and be dismissed. Lord, we are indeed grateful that you are the great physician. We're, we're thankful, Lord, that this week you have worked in the lives of, of, our, of our church members. Even though Ben is way away from us, uh, we're thankful, Lord, that you have uh, worked in his life. Uh, we're thankful, Lord, that, that uh, things have gone well uh, with Nell. We pray that you continue uh, to bless her. Uh, she, uh, we desire that she makes a full recovery. And so, Lord, we... Uh, pray for each person that's on the list even though we don't pray for them by name we lift them up to you and we ask Lord uh, that you bless them in whatever stage of life, circumstance of life uh, that they come to and pray God that, that um, as perhaps they grow impatient with you that they would be reminded uh, that your power is made perfect in weakness as they turn to Christ and pray it all in his name, amen well, let's stand, we'll say the great commission and be dismissed <clears throat> And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.